Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 25. In this chapter, the story of the converted Lamanites, or anti-Nephi-Lehi's, continues. We'll find, in fact, towards the end of this chapter, that even more Lamanites are converted and added to the numbers of these people. At this point in their story, we can see that these faithful people, who, by the way, will later be known as the people of Ammon, that's how the Nephites will come to describe them, these people are still very much living in the land of Nephi, in and and among the Lamanites. It won't be until the next chapter that contains storytelling narrative, Alma chapter 27, that we find them leaving the land of Nephi and joining the Nephites themselves in the land of Zarahemla. So we have that to look forward to. But in this chapter, even after all that they have endured, they do remain in the land of Nephi. More specifically, as we're told in verse 13, they're concentrated in the land of Ishmael, as we would, I think, kind of expect based upon what we've learned previously. The verse also tells us that these anti-Nephi-Lehi's can be found in the land of Nephi. In this case, of course, we're not speaking of the entire nation of Nephi and the land more broadly as it is known, but in the lesser land of Nephi, the state where the palace is and where the king the father of Lamoni and anti-Nephi-Lehi, lived and ruled and where he was approached by Aaron. The end of this chapter is careful to show us, once again in the Book of Mormon, that priesthood covenants and ordinances are fundamental to the conversion process of the Lord's people, of their ongoing repentance, and collectively speaking, we see yet again that the covenants and the ordinances of the priesthood are fundamental to the establishment of the church. And we know from Alma chapter 23 that the church was established throughout the land of Ishmael and the land of Nephi, as well as in several other neighboring lands within the greater land or nation of Nephi. We can most certainly relate with this concept in our modern day and in this final dispensation, because we can see today that the Lord's church rests upon the same foundation. However, in this chapter, we're reminded yet once again in the Book of Mormon that the context of gospel living for these people was within the law of Moses. We're told very simply in verse 15 that these converted people did look forward to the coming of Christ and that the law of Moses was a type of his coming. It's at moments like this, as we read the Book of Mormon, that we are reminded that even though it is a treatise for modern-day discipleship, it is being written from the perspective of those, at least so far in the record, predating the coming of Christ, who lived the law of Moses. 
So more specifically to this chapter, that's the added piece of insight that we are given with respect to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. This chapter actually begins from the perspective of the attacking Lamanites from the previous chapter. How it is that they discontinued their attack upon these converted Lamanites in Alma chapter 24, and now how they are redirecting their ire towards the Nephites to the extent that, as it tells us in verse 1, they swore vengeance upon the Nephites. What we can see from this is that a series of battles with the Nephites came about from this effort on the part of these attacking Lamanites to enact vengeance upon the Nephites. The idea of vengeance in this case seems rather vague. It almost appears as though the ire and the anger is what comes first for these attacking Lamanites, and that they are then looking for a place to express it. This, of course, is not their ostensible reason for attacking the Nephites, but we might notice that that is the true and underlying reason for their attack. This, I think, has modern-day implications, as we might notice the underlying ire and unrest in groups of people who attack others in their more broad or vague pursuit of justice and vengeance. In this chapter, Mormon is careful to show us that prophecy is fulfilled in two ways by this Lamanite offensive into Nephite lands. The first is the destruction of the city of Ammonihah. We first read of this from the perspective of Alma when we were following his timeline in Alma chapter 16. Now we are reading of that same destruction as Alma chapter 25 opens, this time from the perspective of the timeline of the sons of Mosiah, which we know is running parallel to the Alma and Amulek timeline that we had followed earlier. The second fulfilled prophecy that we can see in this chapter is the destruction of the Amulonite people. We'll find here that the majority of them are killed in this offensive, and the minority, it seems, are scattered, and as Mormon will tell us, they are hunted to this day. Mormon will recall the words of Abinadi when he told Noah and his priests that their seed would not only be burned, and killed in the like manner of him, but that they would be scattered abroad and slain, even as a sheep having no shepherd is driven and slain by wild beasts. And now, as Mormon will tell us in verse 12, these words were verified. So perhaps as we look at this chapter from kind of a broader perspective, we can see that it is a continuation of the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehites. Again, we'll see how more are added to their numbers and how it is that living the law of Moses was critical to their way of life and the manner of their conversion. Then, this chapter is most certainly a continuation of the story of the attacking Lamanites more broadly, and perhaps what we could describe as their own efforts to resolve their internal dissonances by seeking vengeance upon those who they believe had wronged them, even if it was in a previous generation. And finally, we can see how this chapter shows the fulfillment of prophecy in two very specific ways. In that sense, while Alma chapter 25 is not oft quoted, we can see that it carries specific scriptural patterns forward and reinforces theses that have already been put forward in other points in the Book of Mormon, and which most certainly makes us think of modern-day applications. Well, now to look at the structure of this chapter, Verses 1 and 2 show us how the remaining Lamanites, 
those attacking Lamanites who, from Alma chapter 24, uh, were not converted unto the Lord. How these remaining Lamanites kind of redirect their ire against the Nephites. And in so doing, they end up destroying the city of Ammonihah, which fulfills Alma's prophecy. So we'll read of that in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 through 12, we'll read of the fulfillment of Abinadi's prophecy with respect to the priests of King Noah and their seed. In other words, the Amulonites. So in this section, we'll see that most Amulonites are destroyed by the Nephites, and the remaining Amulonite leadership is hunted and slain by Lamanites uh, into what was Mormon's present. Or perhaps another way of reading that is that Mormon is abridging Alma's record, and so it is into Alma's present. As verse 8 will tell us, the Lamanites began to hunt the seed of Amulon and his brethren and began to slay them, and they fled into the east wilderness. Then again in verse 9, it says, And behold, they are hunted at this day by the Lamanites. And again, at this day might be at Mormon's day or at Alma's day. We don't quite expect what is to come in this next section in verses 13 and 14. Just as we didn't expect what we saw in the previous chapter, where the converted anti-Nephi-Lehites buried their weapons of war in the earth and simply laid prostrate on the ground as their attackers approached them. That was incredibly unexpected, as was the conversion of many of their attackers. And what we can see here in verses 13 and 14 are that even more Lamanites are converted and add to their number. But this time it's because they had attacked the Nephites and had not found success in so doing. And it seems that the example of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's is still weighing upon their minds and their hearts. This seems to be the only way of explaining the conclusion they came to in verse 13, when it says that they could not overpower the Nephites, and so they returned to their own land. And then we read that many of them came over to dwell in the land of Ishmael and in the land of Nephi, and to join themselves to the people of God. So we'll discuss that in more detail. In verses 15 and 16, we'll learn about the observance of the law of Moses. We'll learn that when we read in verse 14 that these anti-Nephi-Lehi's did walk in the ways of the Lord, that observing the law of Moses is what is implied in that statement. However far away culturally they initially were from living the law of Moses, we can see here that these people of Ammon, as they again will later be called, were willing to fall in line with its requirements. The final verse of this chapter, verse 17, uh, brings us back to the perspective of the sons of Mosiah. All of them are named, and we see them here reflecting, really, and rejoicing over what has occurred so far in their mission. This is a nice transition verse for what is to come in Alma chapter 26 as we read the words of Ammon. And as it happens, verse 17 is also a nice transition point into the beginning of the next piece of storytelling narrative, which will be Alma chapter 27, because it is there that we'll realize that their 14-year mission has come to an end. So now to return to verse 1 for a reading of this chapter. And behold, now it came to pass that those Lamanites were more angry 
because they had slain their brethren. Therefore they swore vengeance upon the Nephites. And they did no more attempt to slay the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi at that time. I think it's fair to say that this would not have been these Lamanites' stated reason for their anger. But in Mormon's wisdom, as he is retelling this for us, he is showing us something about anger and showing us what the real cause of the anger of these Lamanites is in saying that they were more angry because they had slain their brethren. Mormon previously showed us that there were others who were softened and ultimately converted after their experience in slaying their brethren. As verse 25 told us, they were stung for the murders which they had committed. This placed them on the pathway of repentance and conversion. But this group of Lamanites, they took the path of vindictiveness and of anger and of vengeance. As I mentioned earlier, they decide to act this out on the Nephites, even though no specific reason for their vengeance is given here besides the reason of their own anger. This is very insightful indeed by Mormon. Now verse 2, But they took their armies and went over into the borders of the land of Zarahemla and fell upon the people who were in the land of Ammonihah and destroyed them. So, of course, uh, this is a retelling of the destruction of Ammonihah, and this time we're given reasons behind why the, the Lamanites came upon Ammonihah and destroyed it, as we read in Alma chapter 16 and wondered exactly what the reason was. Here, the reason is still vague. It's just vengeance. But at least we can see, more broadly speaking, that it is related to the offensive that these Lamanites uh, embarked upon in the first place in Alma chapter 24. When we consider vengeance for a moment and the quest for justice that lies behind it, we can see in the scriptures just how insatiable that quest really is and that desire really is. We seem to have a tendency as fallen mortals to seek justice for others, yet to seek mercy for ourselves. In a recent, and I would add a seminal, conference talk by Elder Dieter Uchtdorf called The Merciful Obtain Mercy, he said, Let us, as disciples of Jesus Christ, return good for evil. Let us not seek revenge or allow our wrath to overcome us. Remember, in the end, it is the merciful who obtain mercy. So there I think Elder Uchtdorf is implying that there is another way, there is an outvalve, or is there, there is a way of short-circuiting this perpetual problem when evil is returned for evil, and that seems to be the only option of responding to evil. It's to extend mercy in possibly unlikely ways and in moments when it doesn't seem necessary or appropriate. That seems to be the example of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's in the previous chapter, and is most certainly the example of Jesus of Nazareth. When the Savior said, forgive them for they know not what they do, when he hung upon the cross, it's plain enough to see that he's referring to a people that are sinning in ignorance as they crucify him. The underlying message, however, may be that those who return evil for evil become Lucifer's unwitting agents and who unknowingly push his master plan forward, when they act out the desire to resolve 
the evil that has been perpetrated on their own hearts and which exists in their own minds by extending that evil to others, doing the opposite of what uh, Elder Ruchdorf is talking about here. And in that sense, they know not what they do. So this is kind of the first episode in this chapter, and we then can see the fulfillment of Alma's prophecy that Ammonihah would be destroyed. Now as we move to verse 3, we can see that this was not the only battle. Uh, And after that, as verse 3 says, they had many battles with the Nephites, in the which they were driven and slain. We're not sure from this verse if it's the Lamanites that were driven and slain or the Nephites, but verse 4 kind of clarifies this because it says, And among the Lamanites who were slain were almost all the seed of Amulon and his brethren, who were the priests of Noah, and they were slain by the hands of the Nephites. So this kind of completes that thought that begins in verse 3, and we can tell that the Nephites, or excuse me, the attacking Lamanites are unsuccessful in these many battles with the Nephites. Verse 5, and the remainder, having fled into the east wilderness and having usurped the power and authority over the Lamanites, caused that many of the Lamanites should perish by fire because of their unbelief. So this becomes a little more complex here because uh, what we can see is that it's the seed of Amulon and his brethren who are counted among these attacking Lamanites, and they are the ones that are being defeated by the Nephites. However, there are some who still are able to flee into the east wilderness, some Amulonites who are able to do that. And as they are there, they usurp authority and power over Lamanites that are either traveling with them on this attack or who they have encountered as they've moved into the east wilderness. It could be read either way. But it seems that the Lamanites that they're doing this too are among those in the nation of Nephi more broadly that we read about in Alma chapter 23 that were converted and had adopted the beliefs that had come to them from Aaron and his brethren. So to continue with verse 5, having usurped the power and authority over the Lamanites, caused that many of the Lamanites should perish by fire because of their unbelief. So we can see that these Amulonites are are in the east wilderness and they are causing these Lamanites to perish by fire. For many of them, as verse 6 says, after having suffered much loss and so many afflictions, began to be stirred up in remembrance of the words which Aaron and his brethren had preached to them in their land. Therefore they began to disbelieve the traditions of their fathers and to believe in the Lord, and that he gave great power unto the Nephites, and thus there were many of them converted in the wilderness. And, verse 7, it came to pass that those rulers who were the remnant of the children of Amulon caused that they should be put to death, yea, all those that believed in these things. So the pronouns can be confusing here, but as best as we can tell, there is a small group of retreating Amulonites. They find their way into the east wilderness where they come upon a group of Lamanites that have been converted These two groups clash in a way that's not recorded. Whether there's a battle or not, it's unclear. Or perhaps these converted Lamanites submitted themselves to the Amulonites. They may have even done it in the same manner as the converted Lamanites in Alma chapter 24. What we can see, however, is that these leaders of the remnant of the children of Amulon, these depraved Amulonites, caused that these converted Lamanites in the east wilderness uh, should be put to death. And now Mormon will refer to them as martyrs in verse 8. Now this martyrdom, 
caused that many of their brethren should be stirred up to anger, and there began to be contention in the wilderness. And the Lamanites began to hunt the seed of Amulon and his brethren, and began to slay them, and they fled into the east wilderness. So it seems that the Amulonites here uh, perpetrated an act of great atrocity upon these converted Lamanites. There were other Lamanites in this region that became aware of this, and so they hunted the seed of Amulon and his brethren as a consequence. Verse 9, And behold, they are hunted at this day by the Lamanites. Thus the words of Abinadi were brought to pass, which he said concerning the seed of the priests who caused that he should suffer death by fire. Kent Brown provides this insight into this incident. Quote, In a somber aftermath, we learn of the terrible fate of the former priests and their sons. When the Nephite force ambushed the Lamanite army, it both killed almost all the seed of Amulon and his brethren, who were the priests of Noah, and drove the remainder deeper into the wilderness where a rift occurred among the Lamanite soldiers. After an ensuing mutiny, termed a contention in the wilderness, the Lamanites began to hunt and kill the seed of Amulon and his brethren. In a mournful ending to this episode, the record sadly observes that they are hunted at this day by the Lamanites. A generation after the priests were allowed to keep their wives, and following a series of remarkable successes by Nephite missionaries preaching among the Lamanites, which led to a split in the society along religious lines, a Lamanite army, chiefly out of frustration, attacked the Nephite frontier city Ammonihah and destroyed all life in it. And that's a nice summary of what we've just read in the early part of this chapter. Of events that followed, we possess two accounts. One is that of the Nephite army, which tracked the Lamanite force into the wilderness because this latter group had taken captives from neighboring settlements whom the Nephites sought to rescue. Rescue them they did. The commanding general consulted with Alma, the prophet in the church, who gave inspired instructions as to where the Nephite army could intercept the Lamanites with their captives, which they did without loss of life to any of the prisoners. The first account ends with the notation that the former prisoners were brought by their brethren to possess their own lands. So to understand what Brother Jackson is talking about here, we go back and read Alma chapter 16, because that's a parallel um, account of what's happening during this time in Alma chapter 25. And so uh, we can remember that that's when the named uh, Nephite general consulted with Alma and then went to the Sidon and uh, captured those who had been taken captive uh, after Ammonihah had been destroyed. Now, as Jackson, or excuse me, Brown continues, he says, it is the second account that fills in the picture about the fate of the priests and their sons, who, as it happened, were part of the invading Lamanite army that destroyed the city of Ammonihah. So, again, those who destroyed the city of Ammonihah here, part of them were Amulonites. That's what we're learning here. This record originated with the sons of King Mosiah, whose successes as missionaries had raised anger and fear in certain Lamanite circles, an anger that spilled over into a civil conflict between non-believers and newly won believers in the message of Mosiah's sons. Because believers, who were called the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, refused to take up arms in self-defense and because their attackers became frustrated and angry with themselves for slaughtering fellow citizens who were believers, the non-believers swore vengeance upon the Nephites and subsequently attacked the city of Ammonihah. It was this force that the Nephite army intercepted, freeing the prisoners. In a postscript, 
other descendants of the priests of Noah, and we read about that in Alma chapter 43, verse 13, presumably not only children of the priests who were too young to participate in the attack on Ammonihah, but also grandchildren of the former priests, participated in the protracted wars between the Lamanites and Nephites. And uh, there we can see that's especially in Alma chapters 43 through 44 and also 49 through 62. From this point on, we lose sight of them in the record, but we last view them as they rejoined those whose hatred for the Nephites was almost insatiable and dealt in death. And again, that's from Kent Brown. It's in a piece called Marriage and Treaty in the Book of Mormon, and can also be found in Thomas R. Valletta's Book of Mormon Study Guide. There's a lot of narrative complexity in what Brown is saying here, but he's bringing together uh, the account of this war from the perspective that it's given in this chapter, Alma 25, and also from the perspective that it was given in Alma chapter 16. So it, it bears rereading or repeated listening, perhaps, to understand what's happening here. Now, returning to the text, we, we can now see, and Mormon is going to show us, how this uh, demise of the posterity of the priests of Noah, in other words, these Amulonites, how their demise is the fulfillment of Abinadi's prophecy. So verse 10, For he said unto them, What ye shall do unto me shall be a type of things to come. And now Abinadi was the first that suffered death by fire because of his belief in God. Now this is what he meant, that many should suffer death by fire according as he had suffered. And he said unto the priests of Noah that their seed should cause many to be put to death in the like manner as he was, and that they should be scattered abroad and slain, even as a sheep having no shepherd is driven and slain by wild beasts. And now behold, these words were verified, for they were driven by the Lamanites, and they were hunted, and they were smitten. The Book of Mormon Institute manual tells us that Alma chapter 25, verses 1 through 12, record the fulfillment of Abinadi's prophecy regarding the wicked priests of King Noah. Note how Mormon documented for the reader the fulfillment of the prophecies of Abinadi. Consider the results of those who reject the prophets like Abinadi and claim that the prophet has sinned. Modern revelation also contains a warning to those who lift up the heel against mine anointed. And that warning can be found in Doctrine and Covenants section 121, verses 16 through 22. Uh, And I'll read those, and we can think about this seed of the wicked priests of King Noah as I read this. Cursed are all those that shall lift up the hill against mine anointed, saith the Lord, and cry they have sinned when they have not sinned before me, saith the Lord, but have done that which was meet in mine eyes, and which I commanded them. But those who cry transgression do it because they are the servants of sin, and are the children of disobedience themselves. And those who swear falsely against my servants, that they might bring them into bondage and death, woe unto them, because they have offended my little ones, they shall be severed from the ordinances of mine house. Their baskets shall not be full, their houses and their barns shall perish, and they themselves shall be despised by those that flattered them. They shall not have right to the priesthood, nor their posterity after them from generation to generation. It had been better for them that a millstone had been hanged about their necks, and they drowned in the depths of the sea. Now we come into a new and surprising thought altogether as we come into verse 13. 
And it came to pass that when the Lamanites saw that they could not overpower the Nephites, they returned again to their own land. So this is showing us that those attacking Lamanites, there were some that were Amulonites, and so we have just read of their fate. But there were others who were Lamanites, and they uh, responded differently by returning again to their own land. Now as the verse continues, And many of them came over to dwell in the land of Ishmael and the land of Nephi, and to join themselves to the people of God, who were the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi. Lewis Midgley provides this commentary on this phrase, the people of God. The name and description of the community or church in the Book of Mormon was people of God or covenant people of the Lord. Those names, as well as a complex of related language, are linked with the making and renewal of the covenant binding the faithful to God. The covenant was at times renewed through rituals involving the entire community. Those rituals admonished and constituted, as they did with ancient Israel, what the Book of Mormon calls ways of remembrance. Now the account of of these additional converts continues in verse 14. And they did also bury their weapons of war, according as their brethren had. And they began to be a righteous people, and they did walk in the ways of the Lord, and did observe to keep his commandments and his statutes. Now here in verses 15 and 16, we'll learn what is specifically meant by that statement. Yea, and they did keep the law of Moses. For it was expedient that they should keep the law of Moses as yet, for it was not all fulfilled. But notwithstanding the law of Moses, they did look forward to the coming of Christ, considering that the law of Moses was a type of his coming, and believing that they must keep those outward performances until the time that he should be revealed unto them. Kent Jackson and Darrell Matthews have written, The anti-Nephi-Lehi's obeyed the law of Moses, believing that it was a type of Christ's coming. Obeying the law strengthened their faith in Christ. This is one of the finest statements in the scriptures about the role of the law of Moses as a type, a symbol or pattern, or the mission of Christ. The faithful Book of Mormon people observed the law of Moses while looking forward to the coming of Christ and while living the gospel principles and ordinances. They knew that salvation did not come by the law of Moses, but through Christ, Yet the law strengthened their faith in Christ and taught them of him through the spirit of prophecy. Now this from Philip Allred. The Lord has instructed his people throughout time with types and symbols. Types can be defined as persons, events, or things that are real and at the same time point to qualities of Christ or his kingdom. As a whole, the sacrificial ordinances described in the Mosaic law display significant features designed to point to Christ There could be no broken bones in the animals offered, typical of Jesus' literal fulfillment of Psalm 34 and 20. The sacrifice had to be without blemish, representing the purity and sinlessness of the Son of God. On the most holy day in Israel, Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement, the priest laid his hands on the animals and dedicated them to God as his representatives and substitutes. This pointed to the fact that Jesus was the anointed one to perform the great atoning sacrifice, The blood was the means of atonement and was applied to all people and things in order to purify them. Moses required Israel to observe both weekly and seasonal festivals to keep them in remembrance of the Lord. The weekly reminder came in the Sabbath. Earlier in Exodus, Moses had taught that the Lord had ordained that day as a reminder of the creation of the earth. 
However, in Deuteronomy's recitation of the Decalogue, or Ten Commandments, Moses changed the rationale for the Sabbath observance. No longer was it to commemorate the creation, at least not that alone, but now it was to keep the children of Israel in remembrance of the glory of their deliverance from bondage by the Lord. Israel's seasonal reminders came in the triennial festivals of Passover, weeks, which is Shavuot or Pentecost, and tabernacles, which is Succoth. These were held in the spring and fall, naturally timed with the agrarian cycle of planting and harvesting. Not only was the timing significant, but the activities themselves commemorated the great events of Israel's history, the occasions when, in an unmistakable way, God had stepped in to deliver his people. These three festivals typify three roles of the Messiah. Passover is the festival of redemption and points towards the Torah revelation of the Feast of the Weeks. The Harvest Festival in the Autumn celebrates not only creation, but especially redemption. Moses also reiterated the command to celebrate a sabbatical year while in the Promised Land. Every seventh year was to be observed in a way similar to how the weekly Sabbath was observed. The fields were to receive a rest. People were to have faith in God for their needs rather than labor by the strength of their arms. Slaves were freed and debts were canceled. The symbolism is unmistakable. Israel was to recall just as during the weekly Sabbath, that God is powerful to save and deliver them. The people were to totally rely on the Lord. The freeing of slaves kept the people mindful of the one who had unlocked their their prison and thereby invited them to emulate the loving kindness of their Savior. Again, that's by Philip Allred, and it's from a piece called Moses' Charge to Remember. And it really expands on Mormon's concise statement that these people considered that the law of Moses was a type of his coming, and that it was outward performances that they would perform until he should be revealed unto them. So here Mormon is using this account of these converted Lamanites to explain the proper perspective that one should have of the law of Moses during this time. He continues to frame it in this way in verse 16. Now, they did not suppose that salvation came by the law of Moses, but the law of Moses did serve to strengthen their faith in Christ, and thus they did retain a hope through faith unto eternal salvation, relying upon the spirit of prophecy which spake of those things to come. Abinadi offered a similar explanation of the law of Moses when he discussed it in Mosiah chapter 13, uh, particularly in verses 28 through 32. Now here's some commentary that was provided at that time by Ogden and Skinner. Here is a concise treatise on the overall purpose of the law of Moses. Like the Apostle Paul, Abinadi declared that salvation does not come by the law alone. Uh, and, and the comparison there is to be found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, when Paul wrote that knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now as Ogden and Skinner continue, yet earlier he was able to say with confidence that he knew that if the people would keep the commandments of the Mosaic law, they would be saved. How are both statements true? Because the law was conceived to bring people to the Messiah. All those laws and practices were types of things to come. They served to strengthen the ancient disciples' faith in Christ and point their souls to him the only real source of salvation. The law of Moses is a shadow of those things which are to come, and redemption cometh through Christ the Lord. 
Theirs was a very strict law with ritual performances. By the way, Ogden and Skinner were quoting Abinadi there later in Mosiah chapter 16. Theirs was a very strict law with ritual performances and ordinances to observe with exactness day by day to help them remember God and their duty to him. In modern times, we also have our daily and weekly performances and ordinances, reminders to keep our lives straight and our spirituality strong. Bruce R. McConkie in The Promised Messiah made an interesting differentiation between the what we might call the perverted or permutated or rested law of Moses as it was lived by those who uh, looked beyond the mark in the old world and these of the new world who were living it in its purity. He said, Nephites, though separated from their forebearers and kindred by oceans of water, yet kept the law of Moses, but they did so with a proper understanding, knowing that salvation was in Christ who should come and that the law of Moses was a type of his coming. To them the law was not an end in itself, but a means to an end. The blindness of their Jewish relatives in the old world came by looking beyond the mark, meaning, and that of course is a quote from Jacob chapter 4 verse 14, meaning they did not have a proper perspective of the law and know how it was designed to lead them to Christ and his gospel. So this is a wonderful treatment of the law of Moses here at the end of this chapter. And I think what also is of interest here is that the people who are living it are new converts. Like with the parable of the laborers, they are, they are late to arrive in the field. But now that they are observing the law of Moses and looking forward to the coming of Christ, it applies to them as much as any who have come before them. Now in verse 17, we return to the perspective of the sons of Mosiah and their, their, their time to kind of re- reflect and rejoice over what has taken place so far begins, and then that will extend, that tone will extend into Alma chapter 26, as we hear from Ammon. So verse 17, And now behold, Ammon and Aaron, and Omner and Himni, and their brethren, did rejoice exceedingly for the success which they had had among the Lamanites, seeing that the Lord had granted unto them according to their prayers, and that he had also verified his word unto them in every particular. This final statement, of course, is put in Mormon's language. And Mormon, of course, has an agenda as he is editing and compiling and abridging these large plates of Nephi. And that agenda is to show us that the prophecies of the Lord are always fulfilled. And the way that he's saying it here is really curious, that he also verified his word unto them in every particular We can see already several instances in how this is true for the sons of Mosiah, and of course we can see how it's true for us as well. This comes from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. One of the great lessons that emerges from this section of the Book of Alma is that God always keeps his promises. The Lord had told King Mosiah that many would believe his son's teachings and that he would deliver them out of the hands of the Lamanites, and that was in Mosiah chapter 28 verse 7. For the fulfillment of these promises, see Alma chapter 17 verse 4, and then verses 35 through 39. We'll see it again in Alma chapter 19, verses 22 through 23, or we did see it there, and Alma chapter 26, verses 1 through 4. This is just one of the numerous scriptural illustrations that reinforce the doctrinal truth that God is bound when we do what he says. Of course, that's a phrase that comes out of Doctrine and Covenants section 82, verse 10. As we consider the way in which the sons of Mosiah have been delivered up to this point, and how we have recently read of Alma and Amulek's deliverance in the city of Ammonihah. 
we do have the troubling contrast of Abinadi in this chapter. Now, we're talking specifically in this chapter of how Abinadi's prophecy was fulfilled, but we can really think about how Abinadi perished. He was martyred. He was not delivered uh, in his time of peril. That's also true, of course, for the thousand and five anti-Nephi-Lehites who perished at the point of a sword in the previous chapter. This can show us that deliverance can look different under different circumstances for different people, that ultimately it is a spiritual concept, but we can rest assured that the Lord does indeed always deliver. This is from Gerald Hansen, uh, called Book of Alma as a Prototype. He said God's servants are only instruments in his hands. Mormon's statement that God verified his words unto the sons of Mosiah in every particular, that phrase that we just read in this final verse, coupled with the reminder of Abinadi's death, should cause us to note that God allowed Abinadi to die as a martyr, yet protected the sons of Mosiah from death, just as he had promised them. Abinadi and the sons of Mosiah had different assignments. Both fulfilled those assignments. Well, now we're ready to continue with this tone as we go into Alma chapter 26, and we hear directly from Ammon. He will reflect upon the success that he and his brethren, the sons of Mosiah, and those that were with them, their brethren, the success that they had in the Lamanite nation during the previous 14 years. So we have that to look forward to. For now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 25. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and most importantly draw closer to God in our study of his word. So thank you for listening.